David Badil, it is very good to see you and it is brilliant to have you on 20 Questions With. I know I've interviewed you a few times in the past. Yeah, but you interviewed me on the other thing that was a bit like this, which was like five minutes with. That was your first thing, wasn't it? Exactly. That was that was upstairs in a pub in sort of Hampstead, I think. And I really yeah. enjoyed that. You had a clock. I had a clock, a big alarm clock. And, yeah. But the thing about this is, that although it's got a similar type conceit, it's 20 questions, you know, that was five minutes. Of course, 20 questions, you can answer it for as long as or short as you want. What do you think is the ideal podcast length? Well, I do a podcast, which is nominally about David Bowie. It has a very, very dedicated, very small audience uh, because it's had about 200 episodes. And it's now very no longer about David Bowie. I mean, he gets a mention, but it's mainly just me and the other bloke talking. And we have done, you know, hours of that where because we think it's okay just to talk for as long as we like. That probably is not ideal. Uh, I would say something like this. I'm going to go for about 40 minutes. I think that's probably right. I mean, 30 minutes might even be ideal, but then you might lose some of the nuance. Let's try for no more than 40 minutes. And I'm already cheating because that question I asked you about ideal podcast length doesn't count. I hope you forgive me. doesn't count. Okay. Yeah. Here a... we go. First okay. question is the God desire. It raises really important, interesting, existential, very human, very practical questions about our relationship with God, but also our relationship with ourselves and with our own morality. Mm. Talk to me briefly about why you were so interested in actually writing the book. Well, it partly came from Jews Don't Count. Uh, so in Jews Don't Count, maybe the thing that probably most landed uh, with people because there's so much confusion around anti-Semitism is me explaining that anti-Semitism is racism, not religious intolerance. And the way I always explain that is by saying I'm an atheist, but the Gestapo would shoot me immediately. You know, no free parties out of Auschwitz for that. Uh, and I give other examples of how racists are not interested in whether or not you keep kosher before they set light to your house or whatever. And that's why it's racism. And then I sort of wanted to enlarge a bit on what it means to be a Jewish atheist because people are a bit confused about it. Um, I tell a story, a funny story in the book about how uh, because Jews as it turns out, are most likely to be atheists. I mean, not there are lots of quite observant Jews, but I believe amongst people who identify as Jews, as a religious group, something like 50% of Jews would say they were atheists, which is remarkable. Uh, and then I, I was once asked by a rabbi, uh, you, you'll have read this in the book, but I was once asked by a rabbi to light a menorah at the local synagogue. He phoned me up and I didn't want to do it. So I played my trump card. I said, I'm sorry, Rabbi, I'm an atheist. He said, so am I. I thought, fucking hell, it's more widespread than I realised. Uh, but I think it is confusing for people. And I thought that's a way into writing about something I'm very interested in, which is why am I an atheist? The specifics of why I'm an atheist, which are different from most kind of scientific or whatever arguments about God, it's a kind of psychological argument, and how I can still feel which I do, very Jewish and very moved by Jewish things, including prayers. And the book's trying to break all that down. Presumably, you chose the title influenced by Richard Dawkins' famous book, The God Delusion. Yeah. For those who haven't read either, what would you say are the, the, the sort of principal differences in tone, in approach, and maybe not in ultimate conclusion, but in, in your understanding of atheism or agnosticism between you and Dawkins, Richard Dawkins? Well, tone is very different. Uh, I mean, Dawkins is a Darwinist. He's a, you know, I think he's a, bio, what is he, a geneticist, and a Darwinist, and a scientist. 
And uh, he spent a lot of time in that book doing something that actually I don't accept at all, which is trying to work out how religion can be like a gene, like how it can spread like the selfish gene. And it's the first time I ever came across the word meme, actually, was in um, The God Delusion. And he just describes it as a spreading in the way. And I just think like that's a weird analogy because, you know, it's not a genetic thing. It's not a biological thing. But, you know, I have great admiration for Dawkins, by the way. I think Dawkins is incredibly clever and quite brave and all the rest of it. But there are certain things that, well, firstly, there are certain things that he would never quite understand. Uh, and I think that's partly to do with a lot of atheists are what you might call Christian white men. Not all of them are, but quite a lot of them are. Quite a lot of our famous atheists, Christopher Hitchens and him and a few others are sort of Christian white men. And I think one of the key things about feeling Jewish whilst being an atheist is being part of a minority that is persecuted because what is it to hold on to identity? What does it mean to hold on to identity? And even that idea, hold on to identity, as opposed to just be an identity, which is what you are if you're Christian. You don't have to hold on to anything. So in the book, I talk about Simon Sharma in his story of the Jews, talking about how when the Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492, he does his rather beautiful description of them leaving the ports of Spain, saying the Shema. You know, hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Leheinu, Adonai Echad, I can do it, right? Um, and that will always move me. I don't think it would move me if Judaism was just the dominant religion in the world because they wouldn't be being kicked out of Spain. Do you see what I'm saying? It's to do with the spirit of persistence and defiance and survival that is involved. And I think from that, I think what Dawkins finds it difficult to understand is how religion is connected with identity. And that's one of the reasons he gets into trouble. Like one of the when, when Dawkins thinks, I know what, and I can see how he thinks it. And he's right at some level. Why am I getting called racist for being down on Islam? That's the same. I'm down on Christianity. I'm down on all religion. But what he's not understanding is that Islam, like Judaism, because you know Muslims are persecuted in the West at least, is an identity that feels threatened. And if an identity feels threatened, and you see a white man dissing it, then I understand how that can feel you know, difficult or whatever. So the book is also in general, it's a very long answer. Uh, the book is also in general, um, I don't know what the word is exactly, because some religious people really like it and some don't. Like Frank Skinner really doesn't like, he hasn't actually read it, but Frank Skinner really doesn't like it. Um, but what it is, it's, it's very open-hearted in my mind towards religion. Uh, it's absolutely an atheist book. Stone cold, I'm a stone cold atheist. I, I you know, absolutely totally certain that God does not exist. But that comes from, and this is where the God desire is from the God delusion, a feeling in myself that I would deeply want God to exist. I would love God to exist. And I believe that to be really in everyone, even in, even the, all the atheists who dismiss it as nonsense. They would love God to exist because that would mean there'd be justice in the world and life after death and your loved ones would still be around even after they die. All sorts of brilliant things. And I would love because I know that I would love that. That's why because I'm a depressive. That's why I know he doesn't exist, because I know that we would place something, project something into the sky that we want to exist. That's what that's what the God desire is. You're not macho, are you, about your atheism? No, no, it's very unmacho, my atheism, because it comes with. So I quote at one point Bertrand Russell, who obviously is a big old white man atheist, who uh, says that when he dies, when I die, he said, my body and my ego shall rot. But I scorn those who would shiver at the thought of oblivion. And I'm very interested in those two clauses because I believe that when I die, my body and my ego shall rot. 
but I don't would never scorn those who would shiver at the thought of oblivion. That's very, very macho, I think. That's because like it's terrifying. Why why this is the thing that I don't understand with atheists, right? As an atheist, is like it, we are terrified of death, we are terrified of nothingness, we are terrified of chaos and meaninglessness. Why not just admit it? That's why we've created God. I, I and I get that. I don't believe in him. He doesn't exist. We've created him because we can't bear those things. But stop pretending that we can bear them. That That's my position. Do you think it is logical to want there to be a God? It's not logical. It's psychological. It's certainly not logical. So the question that, that sort of springs from that is, how much time have you spent wondering whether it might be all that good a thing if there is a God? In other words... If you believe in God, if you believe in a certain form of God and the religion that comes with it, the apparatus that comes with it, then maybe you would believe in heaven as well as hell. You might believe in purgatory Mm. or rather you believe in hell as well as heaven. So Mm. in that sense... No, but that's no, that no, could be quite I, scary, couldn't it? And, well, yes and no. Yes, obviously it's scary, and obviously it was used by organized religion. Those kind of things are organized by organized religion to keep uh, societies in check. But but here's the thing: a, a few Christians have said this to me. Why would we, if it's all wish fulfillment, why would we create hell? And it's really obvious why. Because a, well, there's it's obvious, although there's a few components to it. Number one, these are unconscious desires. Right, they're unconscious desires, so they don't have a straightforward like, oh, we want this, so we've created that. Right, in the creation of desire, all sorts of things happen, like dreams. Dreams include blissful dreams, and they include terrifying dreams because that's how the unconscious works. On another level, it's also because hell is there to make heaven meaningful. If there was no hell, there would be no heaven, really, because it operates as a very simplistic binary. Yeah, uh, and humans like binaries. They're almost always wrong. They don't. They're almost always not true binaries, as we know from social media. But pe- people like them because they're easy to make sense of the world. And if you want there to be a heaven, you have to have a hell because otherwise, what is heaven? Right? It only is a beautiful place if it's not the place that you're being tortured and by fiery demons. Right? So the scary things are there to make the blissful things have meaning. How do you find meaning for yourself? Do you feel imbued with with meaning? No, I, I I think life is almost completely meaningless. I don't search for meaning in my life. I don't think about it. I think we well. I, th- I think one of the reasons why we've invented God is that we do have a notion of meaning. We have a cert- We do want meaning. And but what do we mean by meaning? What do we actually mean? What we sort of mean is something quite childish. I mean, I'm interested in the childishness of all of this, which is that our lives should be witnessed that they should be count for something, that they should have a narrative and not just be a series of chaotic events, right? Is that what we mean by meaning, right? And God provides all that. Religion provides all that. In reality, I mean, there are many, many things in my life that give me joy, children, football, food, sex. You know, these are things I feel joy for and love. I love life. That's why I'm frightened of death, right? I love life. Uh, but I don't know that they give it meaning exactly. I, I think I just live my life from day to day hoping to maximise joy and often don't, but that's the idea. But I don't know if, that, if that's meaning. Well, I find that very interesting because as a spectator of you, as someone who knows you a little bit, has interacted with you quite a, quite a bit and, and sort of sees you in your various guises, particularly, I suppose, in the modern world on social media, I feel that you 
do have a commitment of sorts to meaning. I mean, I no. don't think I, I don't think you would have made. Uh, let me just let, let me put the. Okay, no, I, I have to contradict you because what I have a commitment to is truth. Don't we get a lot of meaning from truth? No, truth. No, for me, truth is an end in itself. Okay, let me finish the question, the hypothesis, very quickly. So, if you weren't interested in meaning, then I mean, you may then re retort to this by saying, "Well, actually, what you are after is, as you've just said, truth." But I was going to ask you if you weren't interested in meaning, then why did you why did you go on a journey of trying to both expose and perhaps understand and educate people on the Jews don't count thing? That isn't that is not the sort of work of someone who just sort of floats about enjoying life or finding joy in life. And, and there's nothing I don't say just joy. Joy is very very important. Yes, and that is not that is not the work of someone well, who is only preoccupied okay. with joy. I agree with that. Um, joy, well, I think in my sort of sort of personal life, it is about trying to maximize joy to some extent. Uh, in my kind of thinking life, it's about truth. And I mean, you might say, well, that's the same thing as meaning, but I think meaning feels like something higher. And I'm always suspicious of things higher because the moment you get higher, you get God, basically, something spiritual, something above. Truth is not something higher, I don't think. Truth is just uh, an objective, I believe, which people don't. They rel relativize truth now all the time. I am old-fashioned in believing that there, is, there are objective truths in the world, and some of them are quite complex and as a writer and a thinker, I am interested in articulating those. And actually, there is a joy in that. There is definitely, for me, an intellectual joy in thinking, say, in Jews don't count, oh, I think I have isolated here what it is about the progressive mindset that neglects Jews, right? And that, that is a joy. But uh, but it's more, I guess, the joy for me there is in finding truth. There is one other thing which I have talked about before, which is, I think this is slightly, and some people might not like this, but hey, slightly spectrum-y for me. I, I, I find it very, very, very difficult to lie in general. I cannot, I find it just incredibly uncomfortable. Any form of tiny lying, I find uncomfortable. On a larger intellectual level, that means that what I always want to do when I write a book or one of these kind of books or whatever is I'm trying to sort of like scrape away as much as possible about what I think the truth might be and articulate it as clearly as possible. And that feels to be something I'm urged to do by something inside me that, that feels sort of, yeah, urgent that I can't, I can't completely control. Use the word spiritual. And I'm curious to know whether you really have not experienced anything in your life that you might call spiritual are we arguing about words here or have you had a different experience to perhaps lots of people who wouldn't see themselves as religious but do feel that they have some sort of spiritual relationship with the world or with themselves or with others no i don't think so i mean i just wouldn't call it that right i, I you know certainly experienced love uh deep deep love for my family and for other things for you know music and you know sometimes you know, you know, when I see things that are very, very beautiful, I can obviously be moved by them. Story, stories move me enormously. Uh, I felt a very, you know, it depends what you define spiritual as. In When I was 21, I went to see E.T., right? Um, and I was a bit of a still post-teenage kind of sneery kind of person then. Thought it'd be shit. I cried and cried and cried and cried during E.T. And it moved me so much and changed my whole attitude to what cinema and storytelling should be. You could call that a spiritual experience, but I, I think even uh, when I wrote, I wrote a piece about that years and years ago, 
And what I said was, was, was that Steven Spielberg had burst a dam in my heart. So my my interest, even then, back when I wrote that piece, is what are the psychological reasons for why I felt like that? And similarly, what are the psychological reasons why I want to believe in God? How does that translate to the mass psychology of a culture that has created so many versions of God? Uh, and that is just me trying to search for the truth, right? So I, I honestly think it's not a terrible example of that. I, I was so moved. And by the way, it's a Jesus narrative, E.T., it's it's very much a Jesus narrative. It's about a being from on high who comes down to sort of engage with humanity, then sac- nearly gets sacrificed and then gets resurrected, right? Uh, and then goes to heaven, then goes up in the sky to heaven. It's a Jesus narrative, like so many of our narratives. Uh, and I was very very moved by it. But what I'm being, I absolutely know what I'm moved by: brilliant storytelling. And and so I feel the goose pimples on my flesh, and I feel the tears in my eyes. That isn't. I would never describe that as a spiritual experience, but some people might. Having written a book now about this God desire, and and I think you've already distinguished between the desire for there to be a God and an intellectual rationalization of there being a God, perhaps. Why do you think it is that there are so many intelligent people in this country and around the world who do believe in a God? Well, I think there's lots of reasons for that. I think I think you know we make sense of the world and we make sense of our own psyches in all sorts of ways, including, you know, ways that are quite tortuous at times. Uh, I, I personally am very interested in intelligent believers. Frank Skinner is obviously one of my very closest friends. He's incredibly intelligent. As I say in the book, he said to me at one point about his complicated relationship to divorce, which he was at one point, and I said, why are you bothered? He, he said, no, you don't understand. I think I will burn in hellfire because of this. And absolutely meant it, which felt really weird because I you know, thought people who couldn't say that unless they lived in 1603. Uh, but it was fascinating to me that someone so clever could believe that. John Updike, who is my favourite writer by a million miles, was a Christian his whole life. And I think, I think it's very, you know, what I think is that we all do have a need for magic, right? Now, I share in that need i just happen to be someone and this is a depressive position who will always recognize it as a need for magic rather than magic right uh and i i'm prepared to feel the magic whilst knowing this is my need for magic being fulfilled this is my god desire being serviced right so it's a kind of that that's the way i refract the world other people will think this is happening you know or at least I don't know, I guess like very, very religious intellectuals, of which I know quite a few, they generally, I think they're quite interested just in the academic nature of it to some extent. Frank is about the only one who just said to me one day, the thing is when I put the wafer in my mouth, I feel the presence of God and the doubts fall away. And I kind of think when he t- said that to me, I'm not going to try and destabilize that or argue that that isn't an argument. And I so therefore I don't need to argue against it. I'm happy to let that be. Are you impressed by the fact that so much extraordinary art, I'm talking about the visual arts, paintings and sculptures and music, have their roots, their genesis in religion? I'm thinking of Renaissance art, for example, or Haydn's creation or Handel's Messiah. Yeah, um, I am. Um, I I mean, yeah, I I am impressed with it. I also, uh, in the book, I talk about Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, which I think is a fantastic piece of work in many ways and there's a bit in that where jesus says you know tell me why i have to die and in the film during the sort of musical break that follows that question 
they show a montage of incredible art, as if to say the reason why Jesus had to die was for the art and the storytelling. And I kind of think there's a truth to that, because obviously I don't believe in God. I don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But there is a sense in which the story, the greatest story ever told or whatever, is become so integral to our culture that if that man was sacrificed on a cross, then yeah, what he's actually given to the world, because I don't believe he has given to the world a way to salvation, to eternal salvation, but he has given an incredible amount of art and culture and music and whatever. And much of it is very great. I would also say, just on the other side of that, that it's an example of the extraordinary power of the sort of hypnosis, of the mass hypnosis of religion or whatever the God desire might be, by the way, which because it's not just religion. I think I say later on in the book that the way that we think about love now, and by that I don't mean sort of really the personal experience of love, but the love as we conceive it in pop songs and romantic comedies, the idealised version of love is a different version of the God desire. It's like all the songs and all the art used to be about God. Now they're about romantic love. Uh, we always have to have something that we idealise and hold sacred and do a lot of art about. That's something that human beings do. I'm not saying that it's anything wrong with that, but it is a form of mass hypnosis. It's a, a form of a search for meaning, isn't it? If we substitute God with love. Well, again, I don't. I'm quite suspicious of the word for meaning. Of, of meaning, I mean, it's a search for the thing that gives us sort of a sense that life has a story. That's the most important thing. We have to narrativize life and feel that it has a story. And what does it mean to have a story? If you want to talk about meaning, what does it mean that life has to have a story? It means it's sort of not chaotic, that it has a sort of arc, and that gives it a sense that there is something to it, something beyond chaos. I don't think there is anything beyond chaos. I'm trying to create an arc as we go along. I haven't got, as it were, pre-prepared questions. I'm not that's reading okay. from script, so I'm trying to give an arc to our conversation. Yeah, well, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do as human beings. The, I mean, I'm a, story, Sophie, I'm a storyteller myself. I've written 16 books and a film and a musical and whatever, so I'm obsessed with story, and I really like, like story, and actually quite old-fashioned with story. I tend to write plots that have a beginning and a middle and an end, and you know, I write children's books and all the rest of it. But that isn't actually life. We impose that on life. I mean, life is the wrong word. Nature. It is life. It is life because that's life is psychologized. But pure nature is not that. I wonder whether if you had to pick a religion between being religiously Jewish and being Christian, given that that is a dominant religion in this country, which religion would you choose which which sort of appeals so those two what about all the others well you could you could have any religion well yeah so i quite like i mean you know well it's hard to in a way for it not to be judaism because i'm so familiar with judaism i went to an orthodox jewish primary school i know quite a lot of orthodox jews i know the the liniments of orthodox judaism uh oh god it's a nightmare i mean you know to actually be an orthodox jew it's so fiddly uh I, i've said elsewhere that it's sort of like uh ocd i think or like all these sort of like you have to wash this, you have to put this around your arm, you have to say this blessing before this food or whatever. And I think that in itself is psychologically interesting because I think it's about a minority that is totally always under threat, is always anxious. And so it creates a sort of immediate way of, of psychologically comforting itself, right? Uh, which Christianity doesn't need. That's why it has huge arcs towards like death and whatever. Um, I don't think I would be Christian, even though I quite like Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, boringly, which is the obvious one, I think I'd be Buddhist because for two reasons. Buddhism is, well, technically, Buddhism is not a religion. I mean, it doesn't believe in the supernatural. 
the Buddha spent a long time saying, I am not a god, right? This is just a way of being that I'm teaching. The god desire is never more present than I was in Singapore a little while ago. I went to a Buddhist temple and they have the Buddha's teeth. Obviously, it's very unlikely to be the Buddha's teeth, just as it's very unlikely to be splinters of the true cross in various places. But they say they have the Buddha's teeth in the middle of that temple or fourth floor, I think it is, covered in gold covered in you know red and gold and you're only allowed to see it for a certain amount of time and there's many people bowing before it or whatever so what does that prove it proves that whatever anyone says including the proponents of what becomes a major religion about them not being a god they will be treated as a god because we believe in the god desire but probably if you force me to be religious yeah i'll go for buddhism does Judaism, in your view, sufficiently answer the God desire? The afterlife, the idea of the afterlife is very important in Christianity. And it's very important is in Islam, as I understand it. Yeah, is, it so, is, is it so important in Judaism? What, what, no, what is... One of the reasons why those two religions are much bigger is that those two religions hit on something very early on, which is that people are very frightened of death and very frightened of oblivion. And they want to feel that they can carry on in some way and see their loved ones again, and all the rest of the things that we desire. And they centred on that. Uh, as there, you know, there are other things I say in the book, like the creation of a, a of a god who is also a man is a brilliant idea. Uh, is essentially a superhero, which, as you know, is a form that humans like. That's what Jesus is. He's basically a superhero. He's a flawed superhero, like Batman. Um, well, except more powers. Anyway, let's not get too much into that. But with uh, Judaism, as you say in the book, no, Judaism, it, yeah, Judaism, it doesn't Judaism, take Judaism, that box, right? No. Jude, well, Judaism is a really weird religion, right? In many ways. For a start, it's not a proselytizing religion. So very few people convert to Judaism. Jews don't try and convert people. You have to be born into it, right? Uh, and it's, I think it's mainly a religion of neurosis. And so it does have its own. All religion, in my opinion is comforting in some way. It provides psychological comfort. Uh, it provides solace. It is indeed the opium of the people, as someone once said. Uh, I know, Mark said. Actually, I don't think he was the first person to say it. Anyway, that aside, but I think it comforts in different ways. Uh, so as I say, I think because Christianity became the dominant religion, it's because it's centred on life after death. You know, as it were, commercially, that was the right thing to do because so many people are frightened of death and, it, and reward after death. And a particular type of meaning, which is a very simple type of meaning, which is if you live a good life, you will be rewarded after death. That is like bang, root one, give meaning to your life, isn't it? Judaism is, much, as I say, much more fiddly, involves lots and lots of small little 613 mitzvot. A lot of them are really weird. You know, don't carry this on this day, all that stuff. And it's more ancient. That's the other thing, by the way. It's more ancient. And some of it is, as I'm sure you know, just like, oh, uh, we're in the desert in, you know, 6,000 BC. Better not eat this because that will probably make us ill. So it's a lot of it is that, is how tribes survived back then. Why do you think Jews don't count, in your view? And I know I'm asking you to sort of sum up the Jews don't count book and TV show, but it's very interesting to me, something that you punch out, which is that Jews have been seen both as sort of subhuman, inferior and also as almost all-powerful and dominating. And both of those caricatures of 
Jews give rise, of course, to and, and are in themselves anti-Semitic. They give rise to anti-Semitic ways of thinking. How has it been that Jews have been able to be characterised in both of those ways? And why do you think they don't count? Well, the primary reason why Jews don't count is because of the association of Jews with power. Um, like as far as I'm aware, there might be in in you know the East, it might be different for different religions, but in the West, the only minority really always associated with power and privilege and wealth are Jews. Most minorities, I'm talking about how progressives think about minorities, thinking about them as vulnerable, uh, as oppressed, as economically disenfranchised, often in slightly patronising ways, by the way, like, like more and more and more, I think like this sort of the imagination of other minorities as always sort of under the cosh is sometimes correct. And sometimes I think like I meet people I mean, people from those minorities who really pissed off that they're constantly thought of as a, a need in help, needing help from like progressive, right minded thinking white people. Right. But forget about that issue for a minute. The Jews are the only ones who are thought of as powerful and privileged and white. Uh, I was talking about a lot about Jews are white and all the rest of it. And so despite the empirical evidence of a, a sort of loop of intense persecution because it's not just the holocaust there's like a loop in history of like in, incredible persecution of jews going back centuries and centuries the, so there's empirical evidence that jews are a vulnerable imperiled minority somehow or other people find it very hard to imagine that in the way that they do imagine that about other minorities uh, just one point which actually my son pointed out which is really true is that the dual status thing which is very important in the book that jews are both sort of low status vile stinking sort of vermin at the same time, in control of the world. He pointed something out about that, which is true, which is the imagination of the powerful Jew is still monstrous. It's still like, they're still like very horrible, bug-like versions of Jews in control of the world. And in a way, that that goes back to Christian, Christ, a Christian idea, which is the demon, the, the, the creatures in hell are at once subhuman, but incredibly powerful. And I think there's a relationship between that and, and their, the imagination of Jews. I want to address something that is probably easier for us to discuss as Jews. I, I describe myself as Jewish or half Jewish. It doesn't really matter. But just like you, Hitler would had sent me off without any hesitation. Let's just for argument's sake, just to make it more simple, say that I am fully Jewish. I'm right. also I'm also a white male. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I know that whiteness is 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 a you know big part of this. One of the important ways in which I have experienced anti-Semitism or the concern about anti-Semitism in my life personally has been precisely that someone might not know or wouldn't know that I'm Jewish or Jewish, as mm -hmm. I think Jonathan Miller once once yeah. coined the term. And that, that actually I've at times in my life found very difficult because I've thought. Crikey, it's almost like I'm a spy on a conversation. I might be at a dinner and someone not knowing that I'm Jewish might say something. I might worry that they might say something anti-Semitic. And very, 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 very occasionally they did. And that's actually quite an unpleasant or very unpleasant sort of state of mind. The idea that someone might reject you or say something profoundly um, offensive about who you are or your identity because they don't they don't recognize it immediately. Yeah. Now, so that that is an example of why just one example of why anti-Semitism is a very, very bad thing and can affect white people. At the same time as that, I acknowledge that, and I think David Schwimmer in your film acknowledges this, correct me if I'm wrong or misremembered, that I also have the privileges associated with whiteness in this, in, in, in this country. And so my experience of racism, I'm sure, is very different to the experience, say, of someone who is... 
so can I can I come in on that? So you said something there which is very correct: is your experience is different. The point I'm asking in the book and in the film is why should the difference mean that it is dismissed? Because what I'm trying to do is delineate what and how anti-Semitism works and how it works is different from how it works for a brown person or a black person. It's, they have a different experience, obviously, uh, and that involves obviously that they have a more immediate uh, experience, often, unfortunately, with racism than Jews do because they are more visibly different from white people or whatever but then there are things that they don't experience right uh, and one of the things that they don't experience which jews do experience is the way that racists are very keen to out jews uh, and there are now many many websites in which jews are listed as like you should know this person's jewish or that person's jewish and the implication being because Jews are secretly amongst us. They are amongst us and they're doing their terrible dealings or whatever. And at the far end of that, you give Jews armbands. And that the need to give Jews armbands, it comes from this sense of like weird racist sense of like Jews are monstrous and they've all got big noses and they all look whatever. But some of them we can't tell. And so we, we better like mark them out. And so the outing of Jews as like Jews who need to be listed and all the rest of it is a specific experience really to jews i mean some gay people may have experienced that as well but i think it's more specific to jews because i don't think people generally think oh there's lots of gay people amongst us and they're doing secret dealings we don't know about but that does totally happen to jews now i'm not saying that one type of racism is better or worse than the other and no doubt I, I you know as you know i interview my mixed race niece uh on the documentary because and she says to me that her mum who is black you know, she's more worried if she gets stopped by the American police than if uh, bro um, my brother, who's her dad, who's Jewish, uh, if he gets stopped by the police. Uh, I think that's obviously true. And I'm very happy to listen to that. But I'm trying to say, yes, but there are these weird specifics to anti-Semitism that aren't going to be true for all races, racisms. I'm very happy to listen and just listen because it's not my experience to how you experience racism as a black person. Here's how I experience racism as a Jew. Why is one dismissed and one not? That's in, the question. In other words, you don't play top trumps with racism, right? No, no, you don't. You just, I'm just trying to say, I mean, I obviously get accused of that a lot. Uh, oh, I'm um, not. I'm not accusing you. No, no, I know, I know you're not. But I do. Is, uh, but yeah. I do. It's interesting, actually, because I was one of the first people to use the phrase hierarchy of racism, and I use that phrase, and then I notice it coming back at me with like, "Oh, Jews are at the top of the hierarchy of racism," which is a very Jews don't count thing, because what actually that means is a few Jews, including me, have started to call out and try and speak about and delineate and say what anti-Semitism is, and as soon as that happens, there's a sense in which Jews aren't really supposed to be doing that because that is that saying. We are a minority who experience racism, but it's not meant to in any way impinge on anyone else's experience of racism. In my appearance, racism is not a boundaried space in which like the minute you say, well, we need to talk about how it affects us. We're pushing someone else out of that space. I want to just try and get something out, which is that you say in your film that when Israel does something that you disagree with, it is not your responsibility to call it out. And that is because you're not responsible for Israel. Britain is your country. And that's a very, I get the sense, a very important part of who you are, the fact that you are British as well as Jewish yeah. and you're not Israeli. It is also true that... Also, I am, it's also quite important to me that I am British, by the way. Like, never mind the not-Israeli thing. I feel quite, uh, you know, emotionally, quite and passionately, quite, you know, me being a big England fan, having written Three Lions, you know, that didn't come from nowhere. I obviously wrote it with Frank Skinner and Ian Brody, but those feelings don't come from nowhere. I feel, you know, 
English, British, however you want to put it. Partly, I'll tell you why. I mean, obviously, just I do, because this is where I've been brought up. And I do actually, many things about British culture that I genuinely really love, notably comedy. Uh, But I also, I think at some level, feel very grateful to this country because my grandparents and my mother as a baby were allowed in at, you know, literally two minutes to go before the war broke out. And I have a slightly romantic connection, I think, with the notion of British tolerance, which some might say is not as in existence as it was, but I have a romantic notion that it does exist and so therefore feel quite passionately connected to this country. I share in some of that. I mean, my grandparents, they, they escaped from Nazi Austria, or in one case, pre-Nazi Austria, and they, I think, felt very grateful to this country. I feel very passionately English. Some British Jews, who no doubt also feel very British, also do have a, a strong connection or feel a strong connection with Israel. And this is really important to make the point that some Jews feel one thing and some Jews feel another. And therefore, lumping people together is extremely unhelpful. But it was actually it was there at my. So when we first screened the documentary in front of loads of people, the first question, not that helpfully, came from the Jewish Chronicle, uh, who instantly just focused on the bit about Israel and about with Miriam Margulis. And were sort of unhappy that it just seemed to be talking about Israel as being an oppressor and about me talking about my disconnection with Israel or whatever it might be. They were very unhappy about it and whatever. We had a com- I had a conversation with the journalist. And then right at the end of it, a very well-known Jewish woman uh, came up to me and just whispered, oh, thank you for being maybe the first, maybe the only Jew ever to sort of say out loud, you know, it's a foreign country, right? Uh, and that was interesting because it's true. It doesn't need to be said very much. Um, and she she didn't really want to take on the Jewish Chronicle person, but she was pleased that someone had said that. And it's true. It's a foreign country. And and obviously everything I say, everything I say in Jews Don't Count is in context of how are other minorities treated. And, you know, th- this is one of the most bald things in the book, which is, you know, it just would never be the case that a progressive person would say to a Muslim talking about Islamophobia in Britain, can we first clear the air about what you think about human rights in Saudi Arabia or women being killed in Iran or whatever it might be, you know, that would be, that would feel really racist, right? To think that they couldn't speak about that without, without talking about that. But that happens all the time with Jews. There's an important distinction, I think, which is that one, Jews shouldn't feel obliged or expected to speak out against Israel, just as Muslims shouldn't feel obliged or expected to feel to speak out against, say, terrorism, homegrown terrorism. Yeah. And and yet, as and actually, someone... to be honest with you, I do I slightly question that analogy. By the way, I, I, whatever you think about Israel, uh, I d- I wouldn't compare Israel to ISIS. So Muslims obviously should not be expected to speak out about that. But I, I think a better example is you know Muslim states that obviously are in breach of human rights. That wasn't like, the intention of my analogy. I, right. I what I was what I was trying to punt, what I was trying to get to was the idea that certain things are expected of certain communities no, no, or yeah. people with certain identities. Yeah, I'm, going, I'm going to Brazil, um, hopefully, I think it's still happening, uh, to talk about Jews Don't Count, because it's gone a bit global now, which has been really extraordinary. Like now I get invited to all over the world to talk about it. And there's a quite a big Jewish community in Brazil, and I just did an interview before this one. Uh, with a Brazilian journalist who said, I think what you're saying is that there's a sort of Jews are demanded, is the word they use. They do, it's demanded that Jews speak about Israel and have a view about Israel. I think that's right. That's what I'm resisting, that, that we should always, that demand should be placed on us. And yet there's this important distinction, and that is that one, that shouldn't be placed on us, but also that me as a 
Jewish person, I do feel that it is helpful at times for me to speak out when Israel behaves in a way that I feel very uncomfortable with, just as a human being. And I think that's helpful because it shows it's not my job to sort of save anti-Semites from anti from their anti-Semitism, but I think it is helpful to show the wider population and indeed perhaps, well, anti-Semites are going to be anti-Semites unless you unless they go on some sort of de-radicalization course, perhaps. But I just think there's some way, some way it's helpful for me to show that by no means all Jews support Israel, whatever they do. And in fact, probably very right, few right. do. That's possibly true. But I'll be honest with you, it seems to be more destabilizing to me, of the anti-Semitic mindset, and by the way, that would include the anti-Semitic mindset on the left as well as the right, to say, you know what, I'm not very bothered about Israel. It doesn't really mean much to me. That seems to seems to subvert the, that more than the I'm going to speak out against Netanyahu thing, which, by the way, is a very good thing to do, and Netanyahu's a fucking men- he's mental, right? I think he's a fanatic. Do you think, David, that the anti-Semitism on the left, on the hard, on the hard or far left, whatever you want to call it, and anti-Semitism on the hard right or the far right, do you think in the end it really sort of ha- holds hands? I think it probably does. I think at the far left and the far right, you know, it seems very like there's a horseshoe thing going on there. Uh, but I think more interesting for me is how. So here's the thing: you may have seen this, but um, I uh, went on. Uh, Beth Rigsby's show. She does a big kind of interview uh, show, and it was actually for Holocaust Memorial Day, so it's quite a serious one. And she's asking me about all that, and then she said, "Can I ask you about Jeremy Corbyn? And do you think he was an anti-Semite?" And I should have said, "Look, you know what? Let's not talk about that. A, it's sort of out of date, and B, I'm trying to talk about the Holocaust. If I talk about Jeremy Corbyn, it'll just be that'll be what's all over." And it, I made the mistake of not saying that and answering the question and then it was all over social media and I felt bad because I thought like you know I'm supposed to go on as a sort of as a representative of Holocaust Memorial Day right anyway what I said was that I thought that to the question do you think he's an anti-Semite I said no not at the front of his mind that's the phrase I used and then about three weeks later on um the news agent you know that podcast they had him on and they played him that bit I'm talking specific I used the example of that mural the mural of Jewish-looking men playing Monopoly on the backs of the world's poor or something that he supported or whatever, as an example of that. And he got very angry about it. He got very angry and said, how does David Baddiel know what's at the front or the back of my mind? Is he my psychiatrist? What I realised something, which is I should have said, not, I shouldn't have said at the front of his mind or the back, what I should have said was, it's possible that he shows some unconscious bias. Because it's part of my method to say, let's take the language of progressives and how they talk about minorities and apply it to Jews and see what happens. Because all progressives, I think, would happily say, of course, as a white person, I show I probably have unconscious bias towards black people and I'm trying to learn how not to have it, but I won't challenge any suggestion. You know what, that thing. If Jews were to say, well, you're non-Jewish, maybe you have some unconscious bias towards Jews, they're like outraged, (laughs) furious. How can you possibly say that? But I would say... And I I accept, by the way, that I probably do have unconscious bias towards other minorities, but I would also say the deepest unconscious biases are anti-Semitic, in my opinion. I'm just going to say that Corbyn obviously says that he is not anti-Semitic in any way. I'm saying that. I'm saying that. I'm saying I think he displays unconscious bias towards a minority, which I would say, by the way, of virtually all non-Jews. It's just that, you know, people, especially on the left, whilst being very happy to say, yes, I have unconscious bias towards most minorities, 
will not accept that they have unconscious bias towards Jews. And he would say he doesn't, I'm sure. When you experience with your, with one of your brothers anti-Semitism at Chelsea, which is your club, yeah. which is a really quite important part of your life, yeah. it gives, you, gives you joy. Yeah, and also uh, gives me identity. And, you know... Did that change? And you say in your film that Chelsea are, have launched a... I don't know when they did it, but an, anti, an anti, anti-Semitic campaign. Did yeah. that change your relationship with your club? Has it made it more complicated? That's a very good question. Um, well, I was certainly very, very alienated at the time by, not so much by the anti-Semite. Uh, obviously, that was horrible. But what I was alienated by was the club's negligence. Uh, the fact that no stewards did anything, no one intervened. For the first few weeks afterwards, when we tried to report it to the club, they weren't interested. Uh, then later on, you know, uh, it was very hard to get any interest from any of the various initiatives around racism in football to be interested in it. And gradually that changed, to be fair. Uh, you know, we did manage to make the film The Y Word. Gary Lineker really brilliantly came on board to help with that film, which is particularly useful because obviously he was a Spurs hero. And, you know, I would say over the intervening period, a lot of clubs have tried really hard, including Chelsea, to make it not an issue in which Jews don't count. However, I still hear the Y word chanting uh, and it still goes on and all the rest of it. And I, yeah, I mean, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, It used to make me feel unbelievable. I mean, you know, we're talking about many years in Chelsea. This is an interesting thing. I was the first person, me and my brother, to like, I, I don't know how many people outside football knew about the Y word and Spurs. But at least in football, people maybe knew about that. But very few people understood that at Chelsea and Arsenal and West Ham, the word was continually being chanted just in a slightly different way, right? Just incredibly, like, always, always when we played Spurs, always when there was an ex-Spurs player who turned up for the other team, whatever, that's that would be, you know, you know, you know, like really aggressive chanting of it. And this is like, we're talking about 42,000 people chanting a hate word for my ethnicity. Right. And the fact that that went on for so long without anyone calling it out at all still remains to me, in a way, the most extreme example of Jews not counting. So how were you able to to love that club or have that re- important relationship with that club and in- experience joy when Chelsea scored or won a game, whatever it was? Oh, very easily. You know, there's lots and lots of things about your football club that you might not like. Well, it's fairly <laughs> fundamental. Including your, in, your national team, you know, there's like many years I've been incredibly fucked off with the way the England team have played. I hated a lot of the, in the 80s, a lot of the way that they were supported, you know, because that's what we're talking about now, right? We're talking about the fans uh, and it's disgusting the way that the racism and the sort of awful nationalism of England football, travelling England football fans in the 80s, that didn't stop me supporting England because mm. that's a sort of instinctive thing and the same same with Chelsea. Do you feel as uncomfortable, I think you do, but I'm going to ask it anyway, as uncomfortable as I do or do you feel uncomfortable about the way in which Spurs fans have appropriated the Y word. I go to quite a few Spurs games. I live a long way from Manchester, so it's difficult to go to United games. I go. I love live sport and I love watching football. So I go to watch Spurs and I feel I, I can't join in with that chant, even though Spurs fans would tell you that they do it in a sort of self-affirmatory way. The truth is that the vast majority of Spurs fans are not Jewish and I don't feel comfortable as someone who is Jewish with them using that word. This has always been my point, Matthew. Uh, you know, so so there's a two-pronged thing with the Y word is all these other clubs, Chelsea, Arsenal, West Ham, whatever, because of the identification of Spurs as the Jewish club, 
use incredibly anti-Semitic stuff, uh, including use, using the Y word. But Spurs themselves are at fault. However much Spurs fans want to say, oh, no, we mean it positively and it's in solid, all that bollocks, they're not Jewish. Right, the vast majority of Spurs fans are not Jewish, and I know there's a few Jews, less and less and less, who use it. I will tell you because they write to me all the time, Jews saying, "Oh, I used to join in, now I don't," or whatever. But anyway, but it's a you know whatever the idea of it as a Jewish club that itself is quite racist, by the way. It's just because it's quite near Stamford Hill. But really, there's so few Jews in Britain. If there are, if five percent of top of White Hart Lane is ever actual Jews, that would be massively above. The national average right so we're talking thousands and thousands of people appropriating a race hate word for jews that they that they shouldn't be doing right? and they would and this cuts almost to the to the heart of of this jews don't count thing doesn't it because you let, let's take a, a club say that specifically and particularly prided themselves on being an anti-racist club but that were nonetheless supported by the vast majority of people who go there being white and they appropriated the n-word it would not be tolerated Yes, I mean I have said all this, Matthew. You are so you are saying back to me things I've said in articles. But yeah, well, I, I said have... it's at the heart of this thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. You know, if if that was, I mean, it's unimaginable. It's so extraordinary uh, to imagine it. But yes, if there had been a club in in some area that had been loosely associated with being a black area, if the white fans of that club had decided to call themselves the N Word Army, you know, yeah. that club okay. that club would be shut down by the FA tomorrow. So I think it's a very important illustrative point that. Okay, three more quick questions. Let's get on to happy stuff. But do you see yourself now primarily as a comedian, as a storyteller? You talked about the importance of stories earlier. Earlier, A children's author specifically, or not, can't be specific, there's, there's so many things. A presenter, how do you see yourself? I think storyteller is the thing because like I'm, at the moment I'm doing lots of comedy. I'm new, ne- Next year I'm going to be recording all three of my last three stand-up shows, which I've done over the last 10 years for Sky Arts. And I'm out on the road. I'm doing shows tomorrow in Crawley. I was in Manchester this week uh, in which I redo those shows to get them back to speed for that. And if, if it, when I do those shows, I just feel like, uh, like, oh, here I am a comedian, although they're quite storytelling based shows. But I think overall what I do is I tell stories. So either on stage or in books or on film. And even when I'm outlining intellectual ideas, there's an element of storytelling going on there for me. So I think that is primarily what I am, but it's hard to say. Penultimate question, given that you're not a fan of death, mm, I'm really not. What, what are your plans for older age? Well, I'm there. I mean, I'm not dead, but I am in older age, definitely. I now think of myself as basically old. It's a lie to call myself middle-aged. I'm 59. I'm not going to live to uh, 118. So, well, one thing which is complicated, and this comes back to a slight contradiction in your point about the search for meaning, which is a good point, Like, um, is I, if I really was committed to what I said earlier, which is just joy, I just use the word joy rather than pleasure, because pleasure is a bit hedonistic, whereas I meant like I really love seeing my kids, which is, you know, and being with the family, and that's not really like pleasure. Imagine something much more sort of hedonistic than that. But what I mean is, why don't I just retire? Why don't I just retire and you know, have a lovely time, go and live in the Canary Islands or whatever. That sounds shit. But I don't know, live somewhere lovely and uh, spend my time just having, you know, nice food and with, with my kids and all the rest of it. And the truth is that I wouldn't be that happy doing that. I, I like grappling with ideas and trying to write stories and, you know, all that. And That's what I was getting at earlier, but you just won't call that meaning. You you call that well, search I, for I, truth. 
Yes, it, I think it is truth. I think it's a search for my personal version of the truth. I like to think is uh, close to obje- objective truth, but obviously other people will disagree. Final question, and I'm going to have to wrap up several questions in one because I realise that there are so many more things to do, but just in trying to get at the sort of sense of you and your essence, but also where you are at the moment, you, you talk in, in the book, interestingly, about vegetarianism or veganism and about the yeah. idea of sort of killing animals and stuff, but you also eat English breakfasts and clearly enjoy them. And uh, so I want to sort of understand the cognitive dissonance between, on the one hand, intellectually feeling that maybe we shouldn't be killing animals. And by yeah. the way, I eat meat, although I have at various stages been a vegetarian. And, yeah. and on the other hand, enjoying eating meat. And also, yeah. give us you've touched on something. Give us some examples of how you experience joy at, at the areas you experience joy that maybe we don't know about already. And why did you grow a beard? Okay, so that's a number of different questions. So the animals thing is very important. Um, I mean, in a way. Uh, I mean, it's not very important because if it was properly important, I would be a fucking vegan. Uh, but it's important to me intellectually because... I, I despise the phrase right side of history. I think it's one of the most smug, stupid things that people say. It's an online phrase. And the truth is, no one knows what the right side of history will be except Doctor Who. And it also implies that history is linear, which it almost never is. Right. So it could be the case that in future times we go back morally. Right. The idea that history is just progress. It obviously isn't. But if you were to absolutely force me and put a gun to my head and say, what morally will they think about us in 200 years time? they will think that the industrial slaughter of animals is a type of genocide. And the reason that's in the God desire is that I do really believe that one of the reasons that sort of, one of the things that illustrates how we still cling to the notion of God, even if personally we might not believe in a God, is in this idea that we are higher than the animals, right? Because we really aren't. Like we've got language and culture, we've done some stuff that they haven't done, but really we are just another strand of DNA. We really are, right? And actually have this small theory, sorry, this is a very long answer, but which is that I think that is slightly changing. And I think one thing that's changing it, one of the very few good things it's doing is the internet. Because I think that the internet is very obsessed with small films of animals behaving in a very empathetic, very loving, very sort of human way. But you don't right? even need the internet because you have your cat that you well, tell us about and you love cat. your cat, right? No, but I really love my cats and I notice things. No, I don't just love my cats. I notice that cats... Who are thought of as like not as expressive as dogs, which is bollocks, whatever. But each one of those cats, I have four at the moment, but each one of all the is an individual. They have individual personalities and they're very unique beings, right? And so beyond cats, there's dolphins and octopuses or whatever. So how do you deal with this cognitive dissonance? No, I also I have dogs. This is I have dogs and I eat meat. Massive cognitive dissonance. I, sh- I to be fair to me. I eat much, much, much less meat than I used to. I mean, really a lot less. Um, and generally, I'm heading towards a place, I hope. We're, but I'm also weak. I'm a weak-willed person, and I really like the taste of it. I am holding out for the day when, probably from Israel, they finally develop lab lab meat, which really, really tastes like meat. Uh, and that will be great. So that's that's the animal thing. The beard thing? Was, was there something in between? Yeah, the joy, like, joy, joy, joy. Well, I mean... I don't know if there's anything that you wouldn't already know. I mean, my children brought me immense joy. And actually, they brought me immense joy in ways that are not just like, oh, yeah, my children, of course, they bring me joy. Like my son, for example. I seem to have groomed my son to be like an incredibly good mate. Right. So he's now 19. And I like can spend hours and hours and hours watching, say, QVC with my son. Because he's just fucking hilarious, uh, and 
it's weird because you kind of think like I would never have had that relationship with my dad. I mean, he was a funny bloke, my dad, but I was also kind of frightened of him and he was you know, very angry. And also you just didn't, that generation, have a thing where you really wanted to hang out with your dad. But I actually think he does want to hang out with me because we really have a laugh together, right? And that brings me enormous joy, as does my daughter, who's also really funny and whatever. And so that, that's that been like something I wouldn't have known, really, that you can have, you can create these beings who turn out to be a real fucking laugh to hang out with. That's with, a brilliant thing. Without invading your privacy, so don't answer the question if you don't want to, but just as, as a dender, it's, it's something I wanted to ask earlier, but as part of this, you're, you married a non-Jew, right? Yeah. And so... If, think about that element no, no, of it. Okay, I was never but, bothered about marrying a Jew. No, fine. But you married a non-Jew, and you, you, I don't know whether your children have, have, have become Jewish or not, but I guess on one technical level, they're not Jewish in the same way that some people say I'm technically not Jewish because it's my dad who's Jewish. Really old, my... You don't what? Because I'm not I'm not religious, right? So but Do you care as a Jew that your Jewishness is not going to be passed on on one interpretation? Um, well, as it happens, they, they do both identify as Jewish. Um, I think there's two reasons for that. Me being big old king Jew, you know, and so therefore that's had an influence. And the other is something more straightforward, which is I think all young people are very keen on some kind of identity. And Jewish is an identity, complex identity, an elusive identity, but it's more of an identity than Christian. I mean, as it happens, more when it is Catholic and Cornish, which are both very interesting identities. But I think for young people, Jewish is more of a of an interesting identity. And I and also, you know, we do do, despite my atheism, we do Rosh Hashanah, we do Pesach, we do all that, so Hanukkah, because it's fun. It's interesting. It's fun. It's traditional, blah, blah, blah. And historically, they get a sense of family and all the rest of it. So they they do feel Jewish. Unquestionably, that it's been diluted. But to be honest with you, I'm not very bothered about that because one thing I'm not bothered about is because I believe Bertrand Russell, although I don't scorn it, is that when I'm dead, I'm going to be dead. So if like my great grandchildren, who I will not know, aren't bothered about being Jewish, not really. I'm not really worried about that. Finish on the beard then. Uh, I grew the beard primarily because I have a double chin. <laughs> it's not a Jewish thing or anything. I have a double chin and uh, it gives me an imaginary jawline, which I think works. I think people look at me and don't realise I have a double chin. I could be wrong. I like the beard. And I think I have a beard for similar reasons. David Badil, thank you very much for answering my 20 plus questions.